Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. I'm your host, Diane Gibbs, and I'm joined with my friend, by my friend, I don't know how to say that. Anyway, my friend, Joe, we're going to full name, Joseph Carter Brown. And if I was doing full, full name, it'd be Anthony Joseph Carter Brown, right? <laughs> Joseph Anthony Carter. Joseph Anthony. All right. Well, I'm going to mess it up either <laughs> way. Um, but I'm going to call him Joe for the rest of the remainder, remainder of the time. And I'm excited to have him back. We had him on in we, me and the mouse in my pocket, um, <laughs> had him on in January when we talked about fear. And we're going to dig into that just a little bit more and then kind of talk about this other um, empathy, which he's really talking about in a new talk, which is, um, which he'll get to. But Joe, give us a little bit of your background and welcome to the show again. Um, yeah, well, thanks. Uh, so my background, I am a converted computer nerd turned designer uh really i just I, I like tinkering with things um that's how i got into design just trying to figure out as much as i could about different things as a kid and trying to find things that i wanted to do being a homeschool kid at the time and um you know was in love with journalism and by way of a computer crash and files getting corrupted I said well I want to figure out how to stop this from happening and then I started learning more about computers and then I learned more about computers and I was like oh this is sort of cool and then I was like well let me learn how to make websites <laughs> and then I was like well make, maybe I should learn how to make these websites look good. Um, and this is young you're young at this point this is yeah. in high school or middle school at some yeah, point like right? 15, 16 in that range um, and then that became like my obsession slash dedication <laughs> where it was just you know it, it became I, I think I really got into design because I it was sort of like I, I realized quickly that it was an excuse to learn as much as I could about a lot of different things uh, so yeah that was that was sort of uh, sort of how I found design and then that's really been my excuse for doing design for all these years now is just because I get to learn about all types of different things that I wouldn't normally get a chance to in, I guess, in other areas. Right. In other fields, it's more focused. And that's the beauty about design is if you get tired of doing one thing, you can really start studying something else and get right. into something else. That's a beauty of our field. It is yeah. endless, I think. So oh, there's the thunder. Tell me if you can hear that. I can't. Okay, that's good. Hopefully, we'll just keep our um, internet. That's all I really care about. So you were I mean, on the show. Diane, if the if I'm that boring, you don't have to make up an excuse. <laughs> Look at how dark it is. It's not usually this. Like I think the only um the we were talking about this earlier. Now I'm like the regular color, but I it's the only I really should have probably turned a light on in my office. Um, I don't ever turn it on. Anyway, so you're back. You were on the sh in blah. You were back. You were on the show back in January, and right. you were talking about fear and a lot of this this stuff like hey I can figure it out sometimes I think kind of gets in school it um, gets pressed out of us because so your curiosity was really one of the uh, a great superpower for you I think because you haven't ever let that determine you or be an obstacle just because you didn't know how to do something or um, you know, you hadn't ever given a talk in, at, when you were at the Apple store, you would kind of, they would do these talks <laughs> teaching people about different software. And then you kind of just got handed it to you and somebody just, you had sat in on enough of them. You knew what to say. You knew how to use the programs. But that's something, I guess, in the very beginning, we want to make sure people understand what I'm saying when we were talking about fear. Um, you've developed this kind of philosophy of, even a little bit more than when we talked in January and you've actually given a couple talks on the facing your fear kind of thing. Um, what are some ways we can break down and embrace our fears? Because I feel like that's one of your talking points and not let them control us. Yeah. Um, so uh, I sort of, I, I sort of take the almost like project management type of a, uh, idea when it comes to dealing with uh, fear or things that I guess freak me out and that sort of just breaking it down into smaller chunks you know I find when I'm when I'm working on a project even it looks really daunting when I'm going man this is gonna be a huge website that I have to develop for and it's uh, 
you know, all, you know, all this stuff that I have to do and you get overwhelmed. And it's sort of the same thing when you think of like, you know, the fear, I mean, even with developing the talk, which I was in, even still developing it in January. And I remember in our, our pre-talk, I was like, no, don't talk about it yet. I'm not ready. It's not there. Um, but you know, it was very much like once I started taking it and breaking it down into smaller things that it was like, well, this is why I'm freaked out about it. This is what it is. Like, these are the elements that are making me nervous. So if it's, mm-hmm. you know, the reason I was nervous about it was because I didn't feel like I had my content all the way uh, settled in a, a cohesive format. So I was like, all right, well, let me figure out how I tell this story. And then it was like, all right, now I'm a little nervous because I haven't practiced it. Well, now let me sit and let me make sure I practice it. And instead of looking at it as like, I just have to do this one thing at this one point, it was like, I have to do these smaller elements that then help me build up to going into the other side of doing it. Um, and I see, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to, to Jess Buzzwell, who's in here, who's one of my pro- the project managers here. So I hope I did a good job of uh, explaining the project <laughs> management style. I probably butchered the idea of it. I think you did good. I'm sure he'll let us know over on the, he gave a big smile. So that's good. So really looking at a lot of, fear is perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of thinking of it as this huge thing, maybe it's something you even have talked about being friends with fear. So why really analyzing what is it? Because sometimes that's what it is. It's the what ifs, what ifs, what ifs they get in our head. And that becomes bigger than the actual thing of actually doing it. And I find that happens to me a lot. Like I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got all this stuff to do. And it's like, just take one at a time, one step at a time, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, one of those things too, where, like you said, with the what if, or, you know, you'll ask like, well, what if this happens? Like, what if this really terrible thing happens? I'm like, yeah, sure. This really terrible thing could happen. But what if this really awesome thing happens behind? Like, what if you do it and it's just really amazing and you find um, something that you didn't realize was there? Like, I sort of, that's something that I always put into, like, my daughter's head because I'll tell her to try something or do something and she'll say, she'll be like, why? And I'll go, well, why not? You know? And so it's sort of like that type of thing where you're, like, trying to justify. It's almost like you'll justify why you can't do it. And I'll be like, well, what if I can do it? What if you know, why, like, why can't I do it? Like, why is it not possible for me to do? So what are some of the downsides of fear? So talk about that a little bit, analyze that a little bit more of the inner talk that holds us back because it's not usually grounded in something that's reality. And I think as parent, like as a parent to child, you see that because it's again, perspective, but what are some things that would help us when we're kind of in the middle of a storm? Um, well, so I actually sort of, I try to, I think we've had the conversation about like how I like words and I like dissecting words and what they mean. And so like, I, I think that generally we look at fear as a negative word and, and I don't necessarily agree with that. So I sort of look at it at the downside of sort of, I I call, I look at it as like being as fear versus being afraid, you know, Mm. like when you're in fear, you're still being active normally. You're still like, like I'm in fear of something, but I'm still pushing forward through it. And that's to me like a positive reaction to fear. But the negative reaction is like being afraid where you like freeze up and you're just too afraid to do anything. Um, so I guess, you know, those downsides, um, you know, are in, in their things that I've, I've had to deal with, whether it's being like self-destructive and I can look at even my time as, you know, I mean, I was 18 year old eight years old when I started at Apple. So, you know, I was still very much a kid learning how to like work with people. And then having been homeschooled, I was learning how to actually work with people uh, much more, you know, so I had to learn interpersonal skills and, and those. But that's, that's a normal thing, not necessarily homeschool. I mean, there's lots of kids that are homeschooled, but a lot of designers can be really introverted. So you had yeah. to kind of come out of your shell. So can you dig into that a little bit and, and also what you would do in a situation, um, how you've had to just go take one step forward or how you've had to get over freezing up, things like that? Um, so I like, I mean, I like humor. So I, you know, I've just learned to make fun of myself and in a way I just, I learned to like acknowledge it, you know, and, mm. and 
you know, the, for me, that's maybe like the humanizing aspect of it is, you know, is when I stand up in front of a group of people, like I usually am freaking out. But at the same time, if I admit that, then it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, like it doesn't bother me as much because, you know, usually what happens is you're like trying to hide, you know, this fact that you're unsure about something. Whereas like when you just, when I just say, hey, guess what? I'm sort of freaking out right now, <laughs> but I'm going to keep going. Usually people have respect for it. They, you know, because most people wouldn't want to go and do that thing um, or in the same, on the same end when you're doing something and somebody is, you know, you know, if some, if someone's like, Oh, well, you know, you're so nervous. And I'm like, well, at least I did it. At least I tried. Like, are you going to really, are you going to go and try? Like, you're not, you're probably not willing to because you're too afraid to, at least I was willing to try. And, um, you know, so uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just try and look at those words or those things that are considered negative and see how I can turn them into a positive. Maybe that's like my you know, what's the term? Is it Pollyanna? Like that sort of mentality of like mm -hmm. everything and trying to turn it into a positive. And I guess sometimes that can be a fault, but yeah, I mean, that's just sort of how I am. I like try and take things and say, okay, well, where's the, where's the positive in this? So, you know, whether it's fear or like, I mean, usually the, it comes from, you know, the feeling of failing. Um, but I remember when I was uh, in school, somebody said something that, or somebody uh, showed me a quote that really, has resonated with me since. And it was like, if you're not failing, you're not trying. Mm -hmm. So I sort of adopted, adopted this idea of like, I'm going to actually try and fail, you know? Like, and if I'm willing to fail, then that fear doesn't feel as bad because I was willing to fail. I knew that, I, you know, like I know I might suck at this thing. And if I can acknowledge that, but I still try, maybe I don't suck as much as I thought I did. And at least I tried. And if I fail, then, oh, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, at least it is trying. It's that, it's kind of a lot of self-talk is what you're, inside your head, you're having these conversations. Oh, yeah. Right? I like to say I talk to myself because I'm the sanest person I know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I'm always talking to myself. So, and you're kind of changing roles. Um, you've called yourself, a, and we talked about this a little bit last time, um, a dev designer. So it's sort of like a developer and a designer. And right. in your role at your job, you do have to communicate with the developers. You also have to, so you have to know what developers, what their languages are and mm -hmm. things like that. But then you also really have to understand the designer and from the designer perspective, which is great. Um, and I think you're doing a little bit more management in this, in this role. And I could be wrong, but I, yeah. So, um, yeah, recently we, we had some shifts to how we're working and operating a little more as like a design team and managing, uh, just the, the design aspect within the company, trying to bring a little more, uh, of that designer understanding, uh, to the table. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, having empathy for what developers go through, you know, right. and for me, I think it's a benefit because when I start working on, say like a, a comp design for a website, you know, I look at it and I say, okay, well I'm going to design this thing and I think it's going to look good, but I know that the developer is going to have a hell of a time doing it and they're going to hate me afterward. And it's going to push, you know, it's going to make more problems than even though it might look nice, even though I think it's going to be a good solution overall, you know, you have to balance those things. And so being able to have that understanding of what, what will have to go into it, it was a better appreciation. I think usually like the developers here appreciate that more because they know that you're almost looking out for them. So they know that if there's, you know, they, um, they almost know that like uh, myself and, and my, uh, my design partner here, Matt, who I don't know if he can hear me. He's got headphones on. I hope I'm not talking too loud for him. <laughs> um, but you know, like we're, I think we're both really good at trying to under taking it with an understanding of what the developer is going to face while still trying to keep those design ideals in, in line. But yeah, I think that's a, it's a really important thing that I think sometimes develop designers will tend to neglect because they think, Oh, well I have to know all this code. And it's like, no, you just need to know how to work with again, empathy toward what the developer is going to go through. And you can't just think about yourself and what you want to design because at, at the other point, like, if you're not developing it, somebody else has to do it. <laughs> and, 
you can right. either make their life more miserable or you can try and, you know, save them time on the front end. Right. Well, so what about, are you also having to do some of that talk about fear of failure or the fear thing with some of the people on your team and help them kind of motivate them? Is this, or is this really just something you're kind of doing in your, maybe an AIGA or for yourself, you're not necessarily doing it in your team so much. Um, yeah, I mean, so when I first developed the talk, I did present it to the team and uh, just sort of to get feedback. Um, and I, I, I definitely think that it's, you know, it's helpful, but I think it was more of a outward facing or, you know, out, outside of the office type right. of conversation. So why do you think it is, and this is one of my questions to you, but so if you, if today was my first day um, using the pen tool or something, mm -hmm. why do I not want to fail at that? Why do you think some people, when they're trying new things, they don't want to be seen as incompetent? Um, it seems ridiculous that, you know, the first time you're reading Shakespeare that you would be able to memorize it or, you know, know it word from word. I mean, we don't think of this in anything else, but why so much? Is it because we're professionals and, I mean but we are always learning new things, but that incompetence and that fear of failure or that fear that somebody will find out that we don't know. Right. Why do you have an idea of why we do that? Um, I mean, I think it is, you know, like you said, the sort of that feeling of seeming incompetent, you know, um, I think when you get to a certain point, you feel like you're supposed to know, like, oh, I'm supposed to know better. So, you know, if, if I don't know, then I look like I'm not, uh, uh, qualified in other areas um and yeah so i think it just ultimately comes down to and it's probably ego it's probably just the fear of feeling like you're maybe letting someone down sometimes you know if i like if you're asking me to do something like i i sometimes have a fear of just letting people down in general so i'll freak out when i don't know something sometimes because i'm like well i'm supposed to know this i'm supposed to know this for that person because if i don't i let them down but if somebody, if somebody was working for you, somebody was on your team, a, a developer or a designer, and they started, they were new and they started asking you questions, you would never be like, you should know that, right? You really, more than likely, you're like, oh, good question. Let me tell you how we do it here or, yeah. right? Like, I don't know why people really think that. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess, I guess there's, um. I guess it's, it's a dual edge, you know, you feel like, again, you feel like sometimes maybe you should know certain things. Um, and I mean, I've had that here. I mean, when I first started, uh, one of our, our guys uh, just left recently and I was joking with him. He was one of our lead developers here. And I joked that, you know, the first few months he helped me keep my job because I was so, so I don't know if you're familiar with like development workflows, but we use a, uh, a tool called Git which is like for versioning and version tracking and, and uh, uh, like storing code and things like that. And it was such a frustrating thing for me to get a grasp of because, you know, there's like branches and you have different, you know, conflicts that will happen because somebody's working on one branch and it, you know, it no longer works on your branch and you have all these different things that happen. And, you know, I get so nervous at times because I'm like, oh my, I, I should know this. I'm taking his time every time I have to go and ask him a question because he's got things he's doing. He's got to stop and help me and I'm screwing this up. And like, I remember having this little cheat sheet that I wrote just so that I wouldn't have to like bug him every time of little things that I needed to do. And so I actually gave that to him as like a token of appreciation on his last day. Um, but, you know, it was still very much that thing of, you know, I'm working in this environment with all these developers and it's like, they all understand Git. Why don't I, you know, so it's sort of oh, you right. yourself sometimes, you know, you start to think like, well, I should know and I'm taking someone else's time, you know, I'm a professional. So yeah, I shouldn't, you know, should know all the things or I should be able to figure it out. Um, so I think, you know, those are all those things. So, you know, and that sort of goes back to like those downsides of the, the fear and being afraid is like, you start to procrastinate and it's like, because you don't want to ask for it, you just mm. 
you, you hope that it comes to you at some point or, you know, sometimes you might even like start to self-destruct. And I even had to deal with some of those things at times where it's like I could feel myself like getting to this point where I just be like, I'm just not good enough at this. I should just go ahead and quit while I'm ahead. And I'd be like, no, no, that's not <laughs> that's not how but this it, should work. But it's also self-empathy. At those points, you were not self-empathizing with, your, with yourself at all. You were like, you should know this. And it's kind of like this terrible self-talk that you're telling, but you're doing something new that you've never used. So right. um, it empathy kind of goes both ways, I think. Yeah, yeah and I mean... I think it's, yes, yeah, it, it, I guess it's empathy and efficacy even, mm. you know, you know, I know for me getting into this, uh, this work or, uh, what I was doing is like, I worked really hard to get there. So you feel like you now need to prove yourself sometimes. Um, and so you get nervous on that end. Um, but that's sort of also why, like when it comes to, going back to your question about um, uh, ways of like breaking it down and things like that. You know, one thing that I've always tried to do is like find things that remind me of the fact that like I can figure it out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, whether it's looking at my time at being at the Apple store and being this young kid who was 18 and never had a job before and thought like, holy crap, I'm can't, I can't, work with these other guys who are salespeople, like who have been salespeople or, you know, long time tech guys. And, you know, somehow I ended up being fine there and being one of the top salespeople and, you know, being, doing all these things that I didn't think I would be able to do, even though I was telling myself I wouldn't, or, you know, whether it was running my own company for seven years in the middle of a really nasty economic downturn and being able to survive through that. Um, but, or even, um, going back to like when I went back to school to finish my degree and having these moments where I was just like, Oh man, they're going to figure me out. Like I'm, they're going to be like, this dude's terrible. Like, why are you coming to a design school? You're not a designer, you know, but somehow I graduated as valedictorian in my class and like, you know, all these things. So I actually just sort of created this, uh, or not created, but I, I used this, thing that I'll, I'll call it the valedictorian effort because like my joke about being a valedictorian was like, well, it really doesn't mean anything in a design school. Like, you know I mean? Like that's, that's nothing. You know, it just means that I put in the work, hmm. but it wasn't like my, it didn't necessarily mean my work was good enough. I just knew how to get good grades at my work, you know, but in a way it was about the effort that I was willing to put in. So I always, that's what I, I'll say. So even in those times where I was looking at things and saying, well, you know, Oh, I'm not good enough at this or I should just give up and just quit it, I, I tell myself, I'm like, Joe, that's not a valedictorian effort. Like, that's not valedictorian effort, Joe. <laughs> you know? And, um, and it, like, that would sort of motivate me to be like, all right, well, you know, if I can make it through that thing, I'm going to just keep pushing my way through this and see what happens, you know? Right. So Dan had a question. Have you noticed whether or not your self-talk changes when you've spoken aloud? Would you say the same when others can hear you? I think that's a really great hmm. question. Um... Yeah, I, that's a good question, actually. Um, I don't, I think in some ways the talk probably changes a little more to me making fun of it mm. as opposed to it being like a serious thing. Um, again, I do like, you know, humor. I do joke about a lot of things. And usually when I'm nervous or any of those types of things, I usually will joke about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I've definitely found that, again, if I, make it something that's funny, it doesn't seem as daunting or it doesn't seem as overbearing. Um, so yeah, I, I would definitely say that it does change just because like, I'll still be saying the same things, but I'm saying it in a more humorous manner. Right. Uh, and I guess it, it causes me to look at it in a different light. Cause if others were around, would you ever say it alone? Um, out loud if you were alone? Oh, out loud if I'm alone. Um, Probably, because again, I, I like I've definitely found myself having like these really long conversations with myself where I'm like, man, people probably think I'm nuts right now. Just having an actual conversation where I'm answering and asking myself questions, you know? Right. 
But I think I think I think that's good. So Doc said something earlier. He said being creatives have a tendency of being perfectionist as well. I think that lends itself to ego and that the ego has to, and they have to be right. And then he also said pride. Pride was mm -hmm. the silent killer because we don't want to be found out, right? Well. And then Carly just said she read somewhere that the biological feeling of fear is actually the same as the feeling of excitement. So in theory, we could use that to help change the freeze fear mindset to a, a more positive and motivated one. So I love that. That's awesome. So you've also kind of um, talked about the positives of fear, and then we're going to go really more into the empathy and stuff like that and how they're kind of connected. But um, you know, some of the positives are your senses are heightened. Um, what other positive things can happen when we embrace fear? And you had given the example of key and peel, and maybe you can tell us about that one. Um, yeah, yeah. So obviously, the the sort of the biological usage of fear, where yeah, your your senses are heightened. You're actually a little more. A, like things become a little more acute to you. You know, you, you're actually able to respond in a, in a slightly higher manner just because you're sort of so on, on edge uh, in a way. So yeah, it, and, and I think the idea of it, um, I think I've, I've heard a little bit about that or seen something in reference to the feeling of fear being the same as excitement. So yeah, I think that that's, um, I don't know. I think that's a, a good thing and it's usually, is usually a response just letting you know you need to prepare for something mm -hmm. you know so in in the way i i look at it is i've seen that the things that i was most freaked out about were were the things that ultimately ended up being some of the best things that i've done um so now when i when i get that feeling of like being in fear of something i'm like holy crap there's something really awesome about to happen you know mm -hmm. like something really cool that could be right behind that corner if i just push through with it Right. And working my way through it, um, and that's sort of uh, the the parallel I draw in the talk to Key and Peel, um, because and it was a really cool story. I was listening to them on NPR, and uh, I think it was Key Michael Key. I think that's his name. Um, These are two comedians, right? Right, it's two comedians. They had a show at Comedy Central. One of them, Jordan Peel, did the movie Get Out, and um, yeah, and. and it was just an interesting story they were telling, uh, or uh, Key was telling about how they got their start, really, which was they were both on uh, Mad TV. Or actually, so they started out as friends. They had come across each other, and they connected really, uh, really quickly because they were both very similar. They were both comedians. They were living, I think, had just moved to L.A., so they were getting used to a new place. Um, they're both biracial, so they had all these little things that sort of connected them to each other. Um, and so they became friends. And then over the years, they would sometimes cross paths at an audition or something, but they both ended up on Mad TV. And they were, uh, he was talking about how they were on Mad TV and one day they were hanging out after uh, or in between shows or uh, in between tapings. And uh, Jordan Peele had said to Key, he goes, well, uh, he says, he says, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's happening, right? Or, you know, yeah, he's like, you know what, uh, what's going on, right? And uh, he's like, well, yeah, man, we're, you know, doing what we always wanted to do. We're working together. We're blah, blah, blah. And he goes, no, man. He's like, we're competing against each other. He's like, we're too, we're too similar for us to, for them to keep both of us. He's like, our, you know, we're just too close together for them to keep both of us. So we're obviously competing against each other. Whoever does better is going to be the one they keep. And the other person will go off and do, do something else. Um, so there was that fear of, well, I need to be better than this other person, right? But they decided that their response would be to figure out how they could use that to their benefit. So they took it and they started working and writing all their, their sketches together. So anytime they, you know, anytime one of them did a sketch, it was both of them. Anytime there was some comedy or something that somebody found funny, it wasn't just Jordan or Key who was coming up with it, it was both of them. So you couldn't separate. And, you know, they didn't do that because they were like, if we do this, we're going to have one of the highest rated shows on Comedy Central, in a, you know, in, in 10 years. You know, it's like, no, they did it because they were freaked out of what would happen if they didn't, you know, if they didn't make it. Obviously, you know, you're in a spot where 
you've always wanted to be. So you want to have that self-preservation, but at the same time, they like, they had this response that was mainly due to a fear that they had and being able to use that as a, as a positive became much bigger than they, either of them could have imagined. So I think it does kind of wrap back instead of it just being a solo focus, a pride focus, they teamed up together, which happens all the time in design. We have to really work to each other's strengths and we don't want to double up. You know, if you're really good at hand lettering and I'm really good at um, something else, then it will be better if you do the hand lettering and not me try to do that as well. So really kind of working to our strengths and, and making sure that we both are, are needed at the same time. So Doc had another comment question. He said, what's the difference between being confident and pride? I think we all suffer from having confidence. How do you take pride in your work, being confident without being a prideful person? Do you have an answer for that? Um, So confident versus pride. I mean, I, I look at, I mean, I think both are good things to have. Um, you know, I think pride is more of your, uh, that's actually a good question. I, I, in some ways, I think they're similar terms. Um, I think pride is maybe what, it's more about what you can do with something versus confidence is your ability to accomplish something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you give me, a, I don't know, a, a, a website to style out. Like I have confidence that I can accomplish that task, you know, but like my pride makes me want to make it look as, as good or, you know, be very clean code or because I just take pride in my work so that it's as best as it can be. Cause it reflects on you. I can make it as, you know, that I can have that pride, you know? Right. So sometimes pride is um, a negative, right? So it's overconfidence or cockiness. And there is a difference between, but I like how you said pride was in a positive, but if you're overly cocky, that's different than being confident. Confident is about your abilities. I know I can get through it. I can muster through it if it's not, doesn't come super easy, but overconfidence or cockiness is not something because that doesn't, um, come across as a team player. So with the key and peel, they definitely weren't about um, cockiness and who was better, who was had to be bigger. They actually took it took it together, and then they made something that they both could be proud of and confident in. Yeah, and yeah. So I guess it's a matter of again how you how you view pride because you know I, I don't think it's wrong to have pride in something, but yeah, being like prideful. And that's sort of the idea of when we were talking about like the downsides of like that self-destruction, destructing aspect of like, you know, well, I have so much, you know, you, you have too much pride that you won't ask somebody for help or you won't take a step back and like be able to, you know, put yourself in a, in a vulnerable position um, because, you know, again, I should know better or I shouldn't have mm-hmm. to ask someone, you know what I mean? I shouldn't have, have to ask somebody for help. So I'll just you know, be prideful. And I, you know, one of the most important lessons I actually learned when I worked for Apple was, you know, they used to tell us when it came to like helping people in, in tech support types of uh, uh, instances, they were like, you know, they were always like, don't try and pretend you know something. Like, don't, you know, don't tell somebody or if a customer comes in and they have a problem with a piece of software and like there are plenty of resources for you to find the answer. Like the best way you can gain respect from a client or a co- customer is like, it's just by telling them you don't know straight up and, you know, not being like, oh, well, you know, you told me some issue that you're having with your iPod. You don't really know, but I'm going to make up some BS answer because I don't want to look like I don't know. Instead, just saying, you know what? I don't know, but let's, let's go find out, you know, right. being willing to find the answer, you know, and I definitely think that sort of like that, so that destructive level of pride and even confidence that you can have. I think that's a great also story. So kind of going back to the being more self-empathetic, is that when we start analyzing our fears? And do you think this is where design thinking comes into play into our conversations that we have with ourselves about facing things that we're struggling? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess um, where it comes to the, the empathy side of it, 
I think it's it's not just like self empathy, but it's sort of a empathy of I think really empathy of other people is more important in some ways because you know again being able to say well if if I'm having the problem somebody else probably has this problem too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, they might happen in a different way. You know, so if I'm freaking out about this one thing or I'm freaking out about how I manage something and I hold it in, you know, they're probably going through something similar, you know, and maybe it's not in the same, same realm as what you're dealing with. But if I can share with you and again, being vulnerable and saying, well, you know what, I'm just sort of freaking out about this thing right now. I don't know if I'm going to do well at it. You know, they might turn around and say, you know what, I'm dealing with this other thing. And, you know, it's sometimes just having that, like, that empathy to, or where you can build empathy with someone is enough to sort of motivate you to try just because you want to help that person in some cases, you know? So sometimes just sort of taking yourself out of the equation can actually help more, you know, more than you may realize. Well, it's even, even the guy you gave the little cheat sheet to, right? He it was stuff that he might be able to use in the future at another place when he's talking with a designer, because now you took the time and you were vulnerable and said, Hey, here's kind of the cheat sheet I used from everything you taught me. Maybe you can use this with somebody else in the future just to save them a little bit of the steps. right? Right. So I think that's a great example of empathy for other people. And then you go ahead and share it instead of it, just keeping it at your desk, you were happy to share it with the person as well as anybody else who was working with you probably as well. Yeah, absolutely. So does we all have that we talk about, we use these words design thinking Mm -hmm. and you and I had this conversation the other day. Um, How do you define design thinking? (laughs) So um, it's, I'm I'm actually going to read the, uh, the description that uh, CEO Tim Brown, the CEO of IDEO gives for design thinking because IDEO has really helped usher a lot of that uh, mindset. So he says um, design thinking is a human centered approach to innovation that draws from the designer's toolkit to integrate the needs of people, the possibilities of technology and the requirements for business success. Um, So what I've really come to like a, a lot about the design thinking thing is, you know, even since we had our, our first talk, back in January, um, one of the things I've always been thinking about is like, who am I as a designer? Um, because again, I've always viewed design in a, in a slightly different light because I got into it from an aspect that most people don't. Most people, you know, may get into design from, you know, being into arts and then they move into design. Um, whereas I came from more of a development and, and sort of an analytical side, moved into design, and the reason I enjoyed design was because of the, the uh, analytical portions that, that, um, that come in to it. And so I always have liked the design process. Um, and I've actually sort of come to the realization that I'm more so a design, and like, like I enjoy like designing UX strategy more so than I even necessarily care about making the design like I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. care if I make the design I just like helping build the strategy that you know is impactful um so I've enjoyed the the design thinking stuff just because um it is a a lot about that process but it's also about bringing empathy into that process because you know the the work we do on almost a daily basis as a designer is thinking of other people you know is being considerate of what someone else's needs are and what they might need at that at that particular juncture in time so you know with design thinking I mean I don't think you in in some ways I don't think design thinking is necessarily applicable to maybe actually designing something (laughs) you know because that is sometimes a more personal thing where you're taking ideas and you're designing for it but when you're when you start especially working in, in teams and you're working with uh, people who maybe don't have empathy for what you have to go through, it helps put everybody at the table. Um, so, you know, like here in my office, I mean, I'm a designer, but I have developers that I work with. I have project managers that I work with, salespeople, CEO who is thinking about a lot of things, finance people, you know, all these different people who all have things that they want out of something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
you have to take all of those things sometimes into account. And at the same time, you have to take into account who you're actually making it for. Right. <laughs> so really, uh, the design thinking uh, uh, perspective is all about bringing everybody into the room so that you're able to, instead of making guesses on what people want, you're able to talk a little more about how everybody perceives it so that, you know, when you actually get into designing something, you can say, well, you know, I know that, again, if I'm designing this like a website comp, I know that the developer is going to need right. these things. So I need to design around those elements. But I also know that the impact for the, the user is just that they want to come in to your store and buy it. So how do I make it easier for them to go in and do that? At the same time, how do I help meet the needs of the client who they have real needs? They, whether it's to make money or to, to you know, give their, their customer the best product, how do I help represent those things? And it becomes less about just me making a design that looks good just for me. Is something that is actually useful to everyone who has stake in the, the, the process. You and I talked about the other day and you had this brilliant, ooh, it's a really loud thunder. You <laughs> had a, oh, you did? Okay. See, it really is raining. You had this brilliant quote that it was just you talking. He, you said that sometimes you have to have conversations with clients and said, I'm not designing this for you. I'm designing this for your customers, for mm -hmm. your customers, for your clients' customers. And I think that that's something that we have to keep in the forefront. And it's, we have all these people's needs that we're trying to make reality. But in the end, it's that user who's doing it or going to the thing or using the website or how they're doing it that I thought was just brilliant. I didn't want you to leave <laughs> that out. That was a great yeah. thing. No, I mean, like, that's one of my favorite things to say to clients. Like, that was, it's always in my back pocket whenever I have debates with clients, you know, because I had, you know, a client who's like, oh, well, I really don't like this color and I don't like these styles and I don't like these things. And those aren't things that I would do. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I do respect that. And in some ways, again, you have to bring their personality into it because you want the brand to represent them. Um, but there are certain things where you're like, you know what, though, this is going to have the, higher impact on the people you want to talk to it's like you're not going to buy your own stuff <laughs> hopefully if you are you're doing it wrong right. and it's like, you know so it's like what is, what what are they going to get out of it what are they going to see and usually when i have those debates and you know because i think there's also that debate that back and forth that you have with clients because i think sometimes they will feel like you're at odds because they're like well you know your job is just to make this look good. And it's like, no, actually my job is to make it work. And mm -hmm. if, you know, part of making it work is making it look good. But if it doesn't work, then it's not a good design. Exactly. Exactly. And if it doesn't reach the right audience, it's not a good design. Right. Right. So how do we, how can we make more of these conversations? Um, or how can we begin to have some more of these conversations outside of design but still bring into some of that design thinking. Because I know buzzword rise, <laughs> it's all over, right? All right, all right? CEOs are talking about this and they're not talking about design necessarily. They really are talking about empathy. They're talking about, in general, the realm of design. They're not talking about pushing pixels. So how do you think we can bring that conversation together? If maybe you're in a company and you're, you're the boss or the president or CEO doesn't really value some of these things. How can you bring that to the table? And um, Well, so I think that's ultimately, so I think in, in the sense of designers, as I said, being like dealers in empathy or dealers of empathy, it's the idea that, you know, it's our job to figure out, how to communicate with people, you know? So it's like, in a way, it's not necessarily the other person's, it's not necessarily fit right for us to expect or feasible for us to expect that they're able to speak our language because that's not what we do. We don't like, you know, we don't design things just for us. We design things for other people. So ultimately everything we do is about considering other people. So when it comes to helping people understand those things, we have to understand how to speak 
the language. Um, and that's sort of why, like, you know, with the, the, the new talk I've been uh, working on, which I won't say the, the actual title, but it's, you know, it's just freaking design, <laughs> um, which is, you know, it's sort of the idea that, like, you know, all of these things are just part of the design tool, designer's toolkit of building empathy, you know? So, it, yeah, I think we have to just learn to get involved and, I feel like we have this idea of designers being like so different from everyone else that we think that, well, we get to go into our own hole and then we design something and then we come out and it's amazing and everybody loves it and we did our job and we walk off, you know, and nobody knows what we do and nobody can understand it. But right. we have this own, this, this language that we speak together and then we come out and it's amazing. And it's like, it doesn't always work that way. And, you know, in, in a lot of situations, you know, you don't have that that luxury and in some ways you don't have that trust so what happens is designers in some ways get commoditized and that's where you have those like buzzwords of design thinking being used in the manner that isn't sometimes always appropriate because you know someone thinks that oh well you know we'll do all these little things with sticky notes and we'll do these uh these little exercises but we're not really thinking about the real impact of our empathy and we don't aren't thinking about you know all of those things that usually designers should but it's because they don't and in a lot of cases value our voices because we haven't necessarily tried to to bring our voice to the table by showing that we can understand you know like if I can if I can sit down with my CEO and I can say this is why you need to respect the design process because if your design process is better then that means that your your clients are going to, have to be happier because we've created things that the user their customers are responding to because we're using all of these uh, these different skills to have empathy for their their customer and then we're creating communications that are impactful for them, which in turn helps the client's bottom line, in turn helping ours, helping us build our portfolio. But if we don't understand how to sit and talk to them on a level that they understand, and we just talk about, well, you know, you wanna make, you know, if we talk about just how we feel about things or, you know, how we lay things out and, you know, using design, just understanding our own language, it doesn't work because they don't understand that. So they have no empathy for it. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's also, it. this is one of your strengths where it's customer service, to be honest, you're really empathizing with the customer. And maybe it was that you had great training at Apple. I don't know. Um, I'm a sh I, I know you had great training at Apple and I know you're a, you believe in Apple, but, um, and as do I, but finding your strengths they're not always necessarily pixels or illustrators. Sometimes it's these soft skills and these soft skills I think have really helped you to be able to be a better web designer and a better communicator with developers, all those things. So how have you figured out how to use these to your, to make money, to, to go, move ahead in the field? Um, <clears throat> I think just that, just the idea of of using those skills to help people understand where I'm coming from, I guess, mm -hmm. um, and being willing to engage. And I think that's the thing. You know, you'll find like a lot of times people just won't want to engage with with um, you know outside of outside of the profession sometimes. And and uh, you know, it was. Um, a really uh, a Rick Raffae quote that really resonated with me, which he was saying, you know, designers have really done a disservice to themselves by viewing themselves as different. Mm. Um, you know, so for me, it was being able to go into a room and say, well, you know what? No, I'm not that much different because I understand how to, how to level with you. You know, and I understand how to how to talk with you in a way that you understand. It makes you respect me more, and, and then that makes you value me more. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, that's sort of how I how I've always looked at it. You know, because I one of my big frustrations was always like 
you know, I've, I've done so many different things. I mean, I've done sales, I've run my own business, you know, I managed a bookstore and it was always funny when people would be like, Oh, you know, any of those times when I talk to people like that, Oh, I bet that sucks, man. I bet you just wish you were designing. And I'd be like, I am designing. Like I'm learning, you know, like working at a bookstore, I'm learning how to manage certain things. So next time if I ever go into a project, I understand what they have to go through. You know what I mean? If I am doing, if I'm working with salespeople, I understand what they need to get out of it. So I understand how to design something that works for them, you know, right. or help them move along with getting more clients or whatever it is. Um, you know, if I'm again, working with someone who's a just a business person, I understand what I had to go through in running my own business. And I understand like, you know, that, you know, just because it might be the most amazing design, if it's, if the margins on it are, are lopsided, then it's going to not work for them because they have to look at the bottom line. So how do I make these things work? And if I, you know, go into it showing that, Hey, I've considered you, then hopefully you're going to consider me. You're going to have some consideration for me. And we're going to, again, have empathy uh, on those levels. So it's not just about um, an experience. It's, it's no experiences or wasted experience because you can use right. all those. You can go back to all those things. And it's good that you've had a lot of different um, variety in roles that you've played, right? Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, Again, it's like you said, it's, it's just having all of these different experiences have just made me understand certain situations more. Um, and I think that's a, a matter where I think in design terms, there's this idea or this feeling where it's like, well, if you're not making the thing, then you're not a, you're not a real designer. If you're not like you know, doing print design, then you're not a real designer. You're just doing web design stuff. That's not real design. Are you, you know, if you're, you know, but it's like, that's not true. Like you are using these skills still and you're still doing it. Like I remember I was listening to uh, NPR one day and um, they were talking about debt collectors. And they were talking about the, um, the just the, the stress and things that, that people will go through. And they were talking to this one woman and she's talking about how she's been doing it. And she's like, yeah, well, you know, I, I was, uh, I, I went to school for graphic design or I went to school for design and I guess I'm not doing that anymore. And I'm now, you know, working with these people and I'm sitting there, I'm listening to her talk about how she's using her design skills to help people, like how she's using things like empathy and, and things like that to help make people more comfortable when she is dealing in a field where most people don't like you when you enter, when you talk to them on the phone, cause you're trying to get money from them. And so, you know how she's using these skills and she's trying to help them come to a conclusion that will not only help the company she's worked for collect a debt, but help those people. And I'm sitting there listening to her going, you're using your design skills. Mm -hmm. Sure. You're not making a flyer or you're not doing something that's printed, but you actually are using your design skills. Right. That's a great point. I love that. So, we only have a little bit of time left and I want to make sure we cover this. So courage is something that you, some, you have had to reach in and grab a lot of times for a lot of different situations. When we're facing fear, we all have this, right? But it's different at different times in our lives. I don't think we're always probably reaching back to the same place um, that helped us overcome something. So where do you find your courage and how has, or has it changed in different stages of your life? Uh, I guess, in, <laughs> yeah, it has changed in different stages. I think that for me, initially, it was an idea of, again, I thought I had to be confident to be, to have courage. Um, and so in some ways that was not the best approach for me. You know, it, it did lead me to, you know, whether it was not be the best teammate or be, the best employee or whatever it was, because again, I thought I had to be the end all be all, or I thought I had to, you know, I should know already, you know, so being prideful and things like that. Um, you know, I thought that's what it meant to be confident and to have courage. Right. Um, but I think the courage ultimately just comes from sort of admitting sometimes that I, I, I don't know sometimes admitting that, uh, 
I'm not always uh, confident in something, um, but that I'm going to try it anyway. And, you know, just sort of that willingness to, to try. And, um, you know, that was something that, uh, again, you know, I, I tend to take like things that when I meet people or talk to people and there's things that people will say to me that just resonate with me and, and, and those will stick. Um, but uh, the, the one in particular was uh, a conversation I had with uh, Debbie Millman in, in, in a, or a, a talk that she had given in New York some a couple years ago. And she was talking about the need or the feeling of courage versus confidence. And she was saying, you know, it takes courage to build confidence. Mm. And, um, you know, to me, that really sort of stuck with me where it was like, you know, it was sort of like, okay, yeah, so it's not, a, it's okay not to feel confident or, you know, it was always sort of like you, you beat yourself up when you don't feel confident. And so it was sort of like to stop beating myself up about not feeling confident about things mm-hmm. and just sort of being like, well, in a way, it's sort of like, whatever, <laughs> you know, so I sometimes have a bit of a nonchalant attitude about things because I'm just like, whatever, it'll, it, it is in some ways it is what it is. And, you know, you can only, you only work with what you have and, you know, <laughs> you know, oh, well, I guess. No, I love that. Kim also likes that. Takes courage to build confidence. So Debbie Millman told you that, right? Yes. Okay. So um, we kind of already talked about uh, how your new role in in your company is embracing some of these things. So what's next for you? So you have a talk coming up. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that stuff? Yeah. So um <clears throat> Upcoming, uh, I'll actually be over in um, over at the Richmond and Hampton Roads AIGA chapters, uh, speaking with their members there, doing the In Defense of Fear talk. Um, and then I, a few weeks ago or a couple, about a month ago, submitted a talk idea that I've been working on for a while, which is called It's Just Freaking Design. And um, it's really, again, talking to those frustrations of being someone who started on the other end of the design spectrum and trying to move maybe more into the center of it mm-hmm. and, um, you know, meeting people and talking to them about things like web design and people going, Oh, I, I would never, I, I don't do that stuff. That's not my thing. I can't, I can't do it. And I'm sitting there going, well, you know, that's like, like everything right now, <laughs> you know, it is more about, you know, web and digital design than it is about a lot of things. And, you know, again, talking to people and when I talk to people about my, my background in sales and I'm going, I hate sales. I can't, I can't do sales. I was like, well, how are you ever going to get work? (laughs) You know, how are you ever going to like know how to like, you know, even get jobs even um, outside of just picking up independent clients. And, and then, you know, the idea that right now design is at a point where a lot of people are sort of asking for it there's more interest in design than there's been a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of times in the past and because of that though and because of again our unwillingness to like get involved in areas that aren't traditionally considered design we sort of are getting left out of those conversations so it's uh, bringing some parallels and in driving really home the 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 point that designers aren't just, you know, design isn't just the thing that you make. It's like the empathy that you're building with people and that you create besides that. So, you know, when we think of like this idea that like, if you're not creating the thing, you're not actually a designer. It's like, well, no, you are designing, but you, you have to understand how to use those skills. Um, because yes, like we're, at, we're really at a point where design should have, and could have, and I mean, there was an inkart.com article about how like designers are the next generation of CEOs. Mm-hmm. But it's like, if we're not willing to learn how to speak that language, we're not going to get a, a spot at the table. It's like, right. you know, that's what I thought we all wanted. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Right, exactly. So, you have this talk coming up. When is that talk? Yes, that's, um, I'm going to, so WordCamp Baltimore, it's like a WordPress um, conference that they do every year. And um, that particular talk, it's a two-day conference, but it'll be on the first day, which is Saturday, October 14th. Okay. And um, it'll be at the, the Charles Village um, 
uh, location for WordCamp. And if you go to, uh, it's uh, 17.baltimore.wordcamp.org, you can find the whole schedule there and get details on that. And I can actually post that in the chat if you would like. I'm doing it. Easy I enough. think 17, it's 17 or is it spelled oh, out? I said, uh, yeah, here, I'll, I'll post it. 2007. Oh, 2007. Sorry. I, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that will be the, uh, the talk. It'll be at one thirty, Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that and sort of getting the chance to share that talk. Um, I'll, like I said, I'll be speaking over at the Richmond and Hampton Roads chapter for AIGA. Um, when is that? Is at the same time? Is that at the word camp? No, that's, um, October 4th and 5th. Okay. So October 4th, it'll be, uh, Richmond and then October 5th uh, next day over in Hampton Road. So gotcha. there's a chance I sort of do the idea because at the time that we first we started talking about it, I hadn't really started the development and you know the finalization of the it's just freaking design talk. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really throw that as an idea, but since I had been working on it and I was already preparing it for uh, WordCamp, I threw the idea of possibly doing it at one of the chapters. Um, so there's a chance I'd end up doing that one at one of the chapters instead. But right now it's probably going to just be the end of Fences Gears Hall. Oh, cool. Both of them are great. So I want to make sure that everybody knows how to follow you and I'm going to spell them out so that it's not, um, if anybody's listening, you can also follow Ant uh, it's Anthony Brown creates, um, is the website. So www.anthonybrowncreates.com and then, Everywhere else, it's A Brown Creates with an S on the end. And yep. that's Twitter, um, Instagram, things like that. So it's in the chat as well. So Joseph, that's why I think I always w thought it was Anthony and then <laughs> Joseph. But anyway. So it's really funny. Um, Anthony, Anthony Brown, in some ways, is was sort of precipitous to the independence of fear and all that type of stuff. And it's sort of what led to some of that was because, um, long story, but just, I sort of grew up in, I always went by Joe Carter. Um, and then my name is hyphenated. So Carter hyphen Brown. Um, and I was always like reluctant to do the whole hyphenation thing. And so I'd always be like, no, I'm Joe Carter. And when people would call me Joe Brown or something, I'm like, no, 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 it's Carter. Um, and sort of when I started to embrace this idea of like making myself uncomfortable with things and really like in a way chasing after fears, it was sort of like, well, it makes me uncomfortable when, you know, the brown part of my name comes up. So I was mm -hmm. like, well, I might as well just make myself completely uncomfortable and use that. <laughs> my middle name is Anthony. So I was just like, I'm going to go total superhero alter ego on it and just be like Anthony Brown <laughs> and, uh, and just do it that way. Um, I now like it. Knows who I am. It's like, are you Joe? Are you Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> it's the dual um, you. It's who are yeah. you today, right? Yeah, it's for when I start robbing banks. Really, <laughs> whatever. You're <laughs> never gonna do that. I think. I think that's great. But it is nice that it's a and then Brown creates because then it's easy to kind of. I mean, if you didn't know that your name had Anthony right. in there. So I do see Diane Gibbs for my other, and I very rarely tell what my first name is. And my mom's here, and so she did not want to name me that in the big like the, as my first name. It's Constance. Please okay. don't ever anybody call me Constance. Uh, <laughs> no offense to anybody named Constance. It just doesn't fit me as a name. Right. So it's same sort of thing. So I I hear you. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm not gonna do an alter ego with Constance. She would be like some girl that always wore really frilly dresses. I think. <laughs> I'm more of the girl who's going to climb the tree, not, yeah. not sit under it. Ladylike probably. Yeah. But, no, my thing was like, the more things make me cringe, I'm, I've learned to just like embrace it. So like that made me cringe at a certain point. I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> so, um, so but yeah. you've embraced it. You've yeah. embraced it. So this is another little, uh, just a small example of a way that you embraced it. One with Anthony, a name that you didn't go by. And then you, Tacked on brown, right? Right. I think that's great. You had told me about the the hyphenation and the brown part, but I didn't yeah. know about the Anthony. So <laughs> I think that's great. I, I love that. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being on um, today. I always appreciate you 
being on. You're very wise and always bring a good different perspective and something we need to remember. So being able to embrace our fears as well as I like the Pollyanna kind of um, attitude. So go, <laughs> go you on that. But then, but then also really reminding us that what we do is empathize and, and yeah. that's where is all of our strengths if we're a really good designer. So I just wanted to tell you, thank you for that. And then next week we have Alex Lazarus and I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but I'll find out this week as I do at my pre-test with him. So he will be on, he is an amazing illustrator. He's a senior designer at Twitch. And so I'm excited to kind of dig into his story. I had met him. I'd seen his work um, for years on Dribble and things like that. And I got to meet him at Creative South this past year and he was incredible. So I'm, he did, they were all, everybody teamed up for this Adobe camp or whatever the thing where you're like going at it together for a few or four hours or something. And he um, did it by himself and he just rocked at creative jam. Thank you, Amy. It was amazing that he could do what he did in that amount of time. So I'll make sure he shows that. So next week we'll be able to see that, but Joe, thank you again so much and always a pleasure. So make sure you guys follow Joe at a Brown creates on uh, with an S on the end on Instagram and Twitter, and then check his site out at Anthony Brown creates with an S.com. Yeah. And if you're ever in Baltimore, AIJ events is usually where I roam. <laughs> you can find him there and he's really tall. Just so you know, <laughs> well, everybody's really tall to me, but you're really tall. How tall? I'm six one. Yeah, me too. No, I'm just kidding. Five, <laughs> five one. You got 12 inches on me. <laughs> And if you want to get in touch with me or if you had a, a show idea, feel free to email me at diane at rechargingyou.com. And I'm happy to take um, ideas, anything. If you have something that you want um, me to talk about or something that you're struggling with, I'm happy to do that. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Design Recharge. So I will see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Oops. I forgot. Uh -oh.